On behalf of the Atlantic Council, come on in everybody, I think there's still room. On behalf of uh, the Atlantic Council family, I welcome one and all. Thank you for being here. This is really, truly an exciting opportunity for us. Thank you for coming to this most extraordinary event, which we would call uh, a cross-programmatic effort uh, of our Adrian Arched Latin America Center. Adrian is here. Thank you for all you do. We're mighty grateful. Uh, our South Asia Center and Strategic Foresight Initiative. Uh, and part of our Democracy Rebooted Future of Technology in Elections project. Many thanks as well to Smartmatic for their generous support in organizing this event. Now, before we begin, let me just note that our event here is on the record and is also being live streamed. Uh, for those of you on Twitter, I encourage you to follow along using the hashtag ACElectionTech. As technology spreads to various aspects of our lives, the role it plays in elections has increasingly come under scrutiny. With upcoming elections in the United States and in many countries around the world in 2016, it's critical that we review the policies influencing elections and the technology being used to execute them. Countries such as India and Brazil run their elections on technology, which makes you think what's going on in our own country, where the state of Maryland is set to return to paper ballots for the 2016 election. The United States made significant strides in the nation's voting process with the Help America Vote Act that was passed in 2002. However, with many of these processes now antiquated, it is still unclear what 2016 holds for many states across the country. In an effort to address these issues, we created this project with the goal of exploring how to implement technology to effectively and responsibly support legitimate and credible elections in democracies across the globe. Now, as a former governor, I'm keenly aware of the importance of accessible and transparent elections, not only in the election cycle itself, but also in determining the legitimacy and post-election success of officials among their constituents. The first event in the series was held on the West Coast in collaboration with Stanford University, where President Tomas Hendrik uh, Ilves of Estonia addressed the issue as the leader of the only country in the world to use internet voting. For our second event in this project here in Washington today, we're most honored to have former US Secretary of State and honorary board member of the Atlantic Council, Secretary Madeleine Albright, who is here to join us uh, and participate in this most important issue. As we consider the state of democracy today, there is no better person to open our conference than Secretary Albright. We're grateful to have you, Madam Secretary. Throughout her illustrious career, Secretary Albright has been a leading force in promoting democracy and human rights around the world. From her unwavering commitment to ending the 1999 humanitarian crisis in Kosovo to her critical role in halting the spread of nuclear weapons from former Soviet countries, Secretary Albright is widely regarded for providing astute assessments and actionable solutions to global challenges. She has been at the forefront of some of the most important foreign policy decisions affecting the United States and its allies, and through her tireless work, she has become an authoritative voice on democracy around the world. 
We've also gathered an impressive group of experts to delve into the top topic over our keynote session that will be moderated by our very own Peter Schechter, director of our Adrian Arsch Latin America Center. Following the keynote discussion, we'll have a short coffee break, after which we'll jump back in for two panels that will address the key questions of how technology can support a more robust democracy going forward and what lessons can be learned from countries around the world that have implemented electronic voting. It's a pleasure to welcome our moderators, Nancy Scola from Politico and Bill Sweeney from the International Foundation for Electoral Systems. So without further ado, let me turn the program over to our keynote speaker this morning, Secretary Madeleine Albright. Good morning, everybody, and uh, very glad to see you here. Thank you, Governor Huntsman, dear friend John, and thanks to um, the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsht and the, all the things that you do and uh, the Latin American Center for convening this event. And I'm also very pleased to be here with so many friends, uh, including Lord Mark Malik Brown, very good, good friend. Whenever I'm asked to talk about technology, I become grateful that one of the skills I developed as Secretary of State was being able to speak about topics regardless of whether I understood them. Uh, but uh, I have uh, spent a considerable amount of time in recent years thinking about the ways new technologies are reshaping democracy and governance. And while my grasp of how technology works is largely faith-based, my perception of its impact does come from experience. I am known as the first woman Secretary of State, but I was also the first Secretary of State of the 21st century and the last of the 20th. Uh, the truth is that I started saying that uh, kind of six months after I was named, which um, kind of made me uh, act as if I knew that I was going to be there the whole time, kind of uh, overwhelmingly uh, self-centered. And uh, But the truth is that I was there the whole time, so I am. Um, and I was the first to have my own website and the first to visit an internet cafe. I don't know whether people remember those. And it was during my tenure that the State Department moved from the daily distribution of paper to electronic cables, much to the relief of trees everywhere. Of course, the impact of technology on governance is longstanding, but we all agree that the pace of change has accelerated. There are now more than 7 billion cell phone connections on the planet, giving people access to information and disinformation 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The rise of social media is changing the way that citizens engage in politics, enabling them to do simple things such as signing an online petition, but also helping to mobilize entire social movements and giving a boost to protest politics. Meanwhile, technology is credited with providing new opportunities for engagement between citizens and their governments, although it is also disaggregating voices and in some cases weakening traditional political parties. All of this has caused some to rejoice at the prospect of a newly empowered citizenry, while others worry that governing in a democracy is being made that much more difficult or that technology is just a new way for authoritarian leaders to exert control and stifle dissent. As with any issue, the goal for policymakers should be to maximize the good and to minimize the bad, which is easier said than done. 
But I, for one, believe in making the best of every opportunity that exists to strengthen and broaden democracy. And when it comes to new information and communications technology, these opportunities are real. And they include capitalizing on the chance for citizens to communicate more directly and more often with their governance, uh, enabling activists in one country to be in touch with those in another, whether to share thoughts, bear witness, or appeal for help, helping pro-democracy groups to organize, develop policy ideas, and publicize their programs, and finally, a focus of today's conference, improving the ability of citizens, advocates, and candidates to monitor and otherwise ensure the integrity of voting. Now, there's no doubt that in recent years, we've seen an incredible advance in election technologies, including more streamlined voter registration processes and greater use of electronic voting. My hope is that these new technologies will help open up elections, reduce the basis for conflicts, and increase public confidence in the electoral process. But that outcome is by no means inevitable. And that's why discussions such as these are so important. And in order to help frame today's conversation, I'd like to focus on three points. The first is my strong belief that elections belong to the people and that they are vitally important. While they may not be by themselves sufficient to build democracy, they definitely provide the essential cornerstone. The right to elect leaders is demanded by people in every region of the world. Credible elections are valuable as a reflection of democratic sovereignty, but also as a catalyst for reforms that can improve governance, reduce corruption, empower women, raise standards of living, and reduce the likelihood of civil strife. Bad elections, on the other hand, can have disastrous consequences, as we see today in countries such as Burundi. Citizens not only have the right to honest and accurate elections, they have the right to know that their ballots are kept secret and that elections are, in fact, authentic, because this knowledge provides the basis for public trust. And this brings me to my second point which is that the choice of voting technology is not just a technical question. It's a public policy matter because it can help determine whether an election is viewed as credible. Regardless of whether a vote is determined by dropping a pedal, pebble in an urn, as the ancient Greeks did, or by marking a paper ballot, as is done in Canada's federal elections, or by registering choices electronically, the method of voting does matter. It matters that it inspires trust and confidence and that it be well-suited to local circumstances. To that end, we have to be careful not to assume that electronic voting or technologies such as biometric voter IDs will assure people of an election's integrity. This is especially true in places where such technologies may be unfamiliar and viewed with suspicion or where governments may be using proven and reliable technologies even as they intimidate voters in other ways. In the end, what matters most is transparency, and that is, uh, in my capacity as chair of the National Democratic Institute, I am proud to have helped launch the Open Electoral Data Initiative. This initiative identifies nine principles for electoral data openness and encourages citizens and organizations to use that data to hold public institutions accountable. Democratic rules and procedures can always be improved, and that is something we in the United States should take to heart. 
So I can tell you that after the 2000 elections, uh, when from the National Democratic Institute, we were going abroad and telling people how to design ballots and how to count, they said, yeah, hanging chads. Uh, <laughs> episodes like Bush versus Gore are why I have long believed in welcoming election monitors to our country, just as we encourage other nations to make their elections as fair and transparent as possible. Aside from our campaign spending rules, uh, and I say that again, aside from our campaign spending rules, we are proud of our system. But I hope we can learn from what others do best in terms of election technology and vice versa. And this brings me to my third and final point, which is that technology is just a tool and not an end in itself. When it comes to the latest generation of communications breakthroughs, we do not yet know whether they will enable us to break down walls of ignorance and intolerance around the globe, or whether they are simply the latest in a line of advances from the telegraph to the cell phone that have helped to shrink the modern world without doing much to civilize it. What we have learned is that technology can inflate expectation. Consider these words, and I quote, it is impossible that old prejudices and hostilities will continue to exist now that an instrument has been created for the exchange of thought among all the nations of the earth, unquote. This bold prediction was not made last year or even during the last century. It celebrated the opening of the transatlantic cable in 1858. Technology by itself is no substitute for leadership, and there is nothing new about the basic challenge of adapting institutions to keep pace with change. Tomasz Masaryk, the first president of my native Czechoslovakia, used to marvel at the transformation in public habits and discourse created by the invention of the Sunday newspaper. Radio became an unprecedented political tool in the hands of Franklin Roosevelt and Adolf Hitler. Television brought graphic images of war, poverty, and famine into our living rooms for the first time. And we have now entered the next era of testing, adjusting, and discovery. We have no choice but to embrace the new era and to explore it together, as we are in this conference, on how best to use the new technologies to achieve a common good. And in that effort, I hope we will bear in mind that although we live in a world of change, what matters most does not change, and that is our basic commitment to democratic values, our respect for one another, and our commitment to justice and the dignity of every human being. Without those principles in front of us, we will lose our way, but with them beside us, we absolutely cannot go wrong. Thank you very much, and I now look forward to our discussion. Thank you so much, Secretary Albright. That was great. And I get the privilege of having a little chat with you, so that's even greater. I'm Peter Schechter. I'm the director of the Latin America Center here at the Atlantic Council. And as the governor mentioned um, when he introduced the, the, the conference and the secretary, this is a global project of uh, the council. It's being done by my center, the Latin America Center, but also the South Asia Center and the Strategic Foresight Initiative. And I want to thank all of those people who have been involved in this project, and in particular my colleague, Rachel Deleviori, who's really led the day-to-day -day work in this project. It's, I, I want to start really broad. And, um, you know, there's no better person to ask than you, what makes a credible election? And, you know, when we began this project, 
we went to see Mort Halpern, and we had a conversation with him. And he said, tongue in cheek, election day is overrated. <laughs> and you, you, know, you used a lot of words. You, you talked about honest, authentic, transparent, credible, legitimate. What, as you look at elections, what are the things that you try to look for in elections that make them all these things and all those adjectives? Well, first of all, they are necessary, um, but not um, uh, dispositive in everything. And a lot of it is we do talk about election day, but clearly there are an awful lot of things that lead up to it, I think. So there are really kind of three points that are essential. Inclusiveness is the first one. Transparency is the second one, and accountability is the third one. So let me explore that a little bit. The inclusiveness part is obviously uh, making sure that every person in X country has an opportunity to vote. And the question is how that is done. Um, are there ways that people are able to register? Do they have ID cards? What are the different ways? Is the opportunity there for everybody to be a part of it? Because if you decide that X group cannot vote, then already you've got a problem in terms of excluding those who have every right to have a voice about what is going on. The second on um, transparency is that however the system is set up, that if you ask a question about it, um, that you actually can get an answer, that there's not some kind of hidden agenda about um, what pressure is being put, even if it's inclusive, what pressure has been put on a group of people not to vote or to vote a particular way um, so that if they don't vote, they don't get paid or they're excluded in some particular way. So the transparency aspect of being able to go uh, and um, figure out what's going on. And that is often also where the election observers are brought in, which is a, to be able to monitor what's going on transparently. Um, and uh, many people in this room have had the experience of being election observers. It's not as simple as it sounds. And, uh, but it is an absolutely, uh, absolutely key part of it. The accountability part is also very important. The question is, in every country, there needs to be an electoral commission. And the question is, who is in that, on that commission? What is the agenda of the chairman of the commission? Uh, what are the various aspects that there is some sense that if there is a problem, that it will be solved in some way? So for instance, I have observed some really good elections, but I also, there was a Nigerian election like kind of three elections ago that I, I personally, that I was asked what grade I would give since I'm a professor, I said an F, and I declared it a fraud. And it was a fraud because the electoral commission commissioner had an agenda where, and there also were issues in terms of people coming by and stealing ballot boxes. And then I observed a place where all of a sudden the lights went out and there was no way that anybody could get to vote. And then when the counting came, they couldn't see. Uh, so it wasn't exactly a question um, of whether right. it, what was going on. But those three things, I think, really, if you look at those, are part of it. So can I take your three things and can we apply technology to those three things? Because I think it's, 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 they're really incisive, you know, inclusiveness, um, transparency and accountability. Do you, do you see technology, because I think you made a very good point that technology cannot be a means, an, an end unto itself. It has to be a means to these very right. things. Do you see technology as having expanded 
inclusiveness, transparency, and accountability? Yes, absolutely. And I think, for instance, on inclusiveness, uh, when people now, there's a way through technology to identify who they are and whether they have ID cards and do they have biometric or fingerprints or something on it. I think that that does help. It isn't a matter of just coming with some folded piece of paper that proves that you are who you are and you live where you are. The question is there, and one of the things I think this was clear, I hope, from my remarks, that, that a lot about this is a double-edged sword. Technology is a tool, and it's the question of how it is used. So if, in fact, all of a sudden it has been determined that not everybody that there's no access to this ID card process, that people have been excluded because they can't have it. So for instance, on the last Nigerian election, I got called by somebody in high office who said, well, why are you criticizing the fact that this election has been postponed because of security reasons? I can tell you that the problem is that we hadn't been, that all the cards hadn't been, the ID cards hadn't been distributed. Right. So in that, I think there really is it, it's very important to have access to it, that it be done fairly and rapidly enough so that people um, are not excluded, the inclusiveness part of it. On the transparency, absolutely. I think that, uh, and this is where it really does become a double-edged sword, is transparency, if you can um, look at the voting um, machines and that there is a way to do that, and that it's all accounted for, then that is more transparent than uh, trying to figure out if people have understood a paper ballot right. and whether they've checked off the right things. The question then is, and this is the double-edged part, whether anybody's mucked around with the machines. Um, and as we've said, that happens in this country as well as in other countries. But it certainly makes easier a vote count uh, and it gives some validity to it. Uh, but I think that is the crucial question here about how that works. And then on the accountability, it is really kind of a carryover from the last point in terms of who's, how do you make sure that it really has worked? And if it hasn't, then does the governmental system have a process to say, okay, the machines in X place didn't work. We need to redo that. It's perfectly fair. Uh, we have a better way of doing it because the machine uh, was faulty. So I, I, I want to open it up a little bit to questions if, if you'd allow me to, but I, I have one, one question that really goes to the heart of some of the things that I've thought about as we, as, as we at the Atlantic Council have gotten into this, which is, is there a difference between being a consumer of technology, of technology and a citizen using technology? So, you know, I have two teenage daughters. They press a button, some man that I have never heard of shows up at their house, at my house, and picks them up and takes them to places on a Saturday night. Really? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Um, but we, and I trust that man because he's been vetted by a company. Um, and so the, the question is... No wonder you're Don't laugh, hair. all of your daughters and sons are doing the same thing. So the, que the, the question here is, I mean, we, as, as the governor said, Maryland is returning to paper in this next election. There is, is there something about voting that is different from banking online, booking travel online, booking a cab online? Is there something about voting that makes it different? Well, I will answer, but to, I, I just have to tell you in terms of vetting and all that. I came, I drove myself down this morning and I picked up two of the people that I work with in the alley and then there was a text, 
who did Madeleine Albright pick up in the alley? Is she now an Uber driver? <laughs> <laughs> so. My daughter should want an Uber driver like that. <laughs> um, but let me say this. I think the difference is that on consumer, they have a choice. You have a choice. You don't have to um, have the uh, company that is doing this. You can switch to something else. You can have a different right. system. Um, any number of ways where the choice is yours. On voting technology, you have to use whatever has been supplied. And so I think the question then becomes how, who supplies it, how it's done, uh, and go back to the three uh, points here. But the real difference is the choice versus the fact that this is what's provided. I think that's the... It's very interesting. Yeah. Let me, um, I'm always accused of going on Latino time and all my colleagues are gonna start looking at me. I'm gonna take uh, a couple of questions. If my colleagues would help me pass microphones. Please identify yourself, the gentleman here in front. Madam Secretary, I'm not going to ask you whether NATO is relevant or a relic. <laughs> I am going to ask you, though, however, to take technology and turn it on its head. How do you think technology could make for better candidates or make candidates better, especially in the United States? In 2012, <laughs> it's a serious issue. In 2012, Governor Huntsman, not because he was chairman here, was one of the more serious candidates, but he had to deal with less serious candidates. And certainly today, the Republican side is much more of a reality show, similarly, in some degree, the Democratic side. So what do you think technology might be able to do? And is there, every, is there any way that technology might be employed to deal with the uh, PACs and super PACs and the sort of ludicrous campaign financing to expose greater transparency? Or is this just a bridge too far? Thank you. Um, I think this is definitely um, something that is the double-edged sword. Because to some extent, technology has opened up a whole set of social media that is operating on its own bottom, uh, trying to figure out how to get ahead and uh, get money a number of, of different ways. I do think what troubles me a great deal, and it usually takes me at least a half an hour to criticize the press, but uh, the bottom line is in terms of <laughs> a lot of what has happened is ratings, and that's technology in terms of who, uh, how cable channels are working and all that. I do think it would be good to actually use technology to do um, for testing whether people are telling the truth um, and whether, you know, what would happen if the, the uh, some kind of uh, equipment went off the screen when they were lying or really uh, threatening. Um, but I, I think it is hard. I do think on the money part, I do think that there probably can and should be a greater way of testing beyond just saying X has given money, very large amounts of it, as to where it's going. And I know the Federal Election Commission tries, but I, I think it is very hard. I think the question is uh, how technology works. And let me, I have stolen this line from somebody, but I, um, I do think it makes a certain amount of sense of what is happening to us. Uh, I mostly talk about this when I talk about what happened during the Arab Spring, but what has happened is people are talking to their governments on 21st century technology. Uh, the government hears them on 20th century technology and is providing 19th century responses. <laughs> and therefore, there is no faith in institutions. And that's what's going on. The institutional structures are being undermined because not only the ones talking on 21st century technology are getting their information God knows where and whether it's accurate or not. 
um, and people only listen to what they already believe in, which um, I, you will, some of you may be surprised, I actually listen to Rush Limbaugh as I drive, uh, don't be near me, um, <laughs> because it makes, I get so mad. Uh, but the bottom line is you need to listen to things you disagree with. Right. And the technology allows you to, to operate within your own echo chamber. If I can, I'm going to steal that too. Yeah. <laughs> Gentleman here. That last question and answer dovetails nicely with mine. Bill Lawrence, CSID. Um, Could you speak up just a bit, please? Bill Lawrence, CSID. The, um, I know you've been in Tunisia recently and you care a lot about Tunisia, and I'd, so I'd like to drill down a little bit on the same issue. In Tunisia, you have, um, and it's all in our mind today because of the Nobel Peace Prize uh, that went to a group of civil society organizations. You have an older generation that's voting at 80, 90% levels, right, and is very organized and is in many ways voting in a lot of old regime people. The youth vote rates in the, in the fall elections, the three rounds, was 80 to 90% non-participation. And you have a lot of young people who are exactly like you said. So I'd like to ask the question another way. How do you help youth move from protest politics on technology to organizing themselves in political ways that, uh, yeah. that um, can, 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 can move politics forward? It's a great question. Yeah. I'm very glad you mentioned Tunisia. Um, I think it's great that they got the Nobel Peace Prize. And, uh, it is a country that has proving many different aspects. And if I could put this a little bit into context, the Arab Spring basically started there. Um, and it has many aspects that um, um, I think many of you know Hernando de Soto, who in fact can explain everything by property rights. But the bottom line is, in this case, it works. Uh, because what happened was the father of Bazazi uh, died. His mother, because of the law, could not inherit um, anything, and so he then didn't have money um, in order to buy his vegetables and felt that he was being disrespected within the system, and there, in fact, were immolations across North Africa. So this country that really began it is now an example of where things have worked in a number of different ways. If I may say so, NDI has been in Tunisia working very hard, and one of the, the magical parts about why these people got the Nobel Peace Prize was because they could form coalitions and work together. And that's really what happened in the political parties, too. It also, um, I just, uh, I've got another thing that Secretary Clinton had asked me to do, Partners for a New Beginning, which were public-private partnerships. And we had an investment conference in Tunisia uh, because Pat's from NDI, so he's heard me say this endlessly. Democracy has to deliver. People need to want to vote and eat. And so the, the combination of economic and political development go together. The issue that you ask about, and we saw this in Tahrir Square, is that people are motivated by social media. But what has happened, and this is the problem, it has disaggregated the voices. And one of the hard parts is to then persuade people that um, political parties are the method of channeling um, uh, voices and desires and um, policies, and that you can't get those if you don't vote and if you don't create the parties. And the question is how you persuade people in this country also that in order to really have a voice, you have to vote. 
Um, and we have very low participatory rates, and so it's a little kind of hypocritical of us to be to, but I think part of it is that, and it goes back to the statement that I stole, which is people actually think that the government hears them by talking on 21st century technology, but it hasn't gone through the process of voting, which is what could in fact change the system. So, but it takes education. Um, and, and I think that that is where um, you do need, um, maybe from the outside, not necessarily the United States, but just some explaining to people how the system works, but then the system has to respond to them, otherwise they're not gonna vote the next time. Thank you. Madam, right here, thank you. Thank you, I'm Kay Oshel. I'm retired from the Department of Labor office that regulates union officer elections. And I was wondering whether you thought the right to vote includes the right not to vote. I'm thinking about countries like Australia where you can be fined if you don't go to the polls. Lots of Latin American countries right. who vote and voting I, I have to say, I guess there is a right not to vote, but the bottom line I think is people can't expect their governments to work if they sit on the side. And so I do think um, that if it goes a little bit to the previous question also in terms of how you teach people that it's a privilege to be a citizen, but it is also a responsibility. And I think part of what's happened is that there's, and it goes to the first question, frankly, too, is this kind of the sense that you can criticize from the outside and think that things will actually happen that will, that will redound to um, making a better society. And if you, now it's something different if you protest, I mean, if, you, if the problem is that you are being told to vote for one person, some kind of authoritarian system where you don't want to vote right. for ex-dictator, uh, and then you don't vote, that is something else. But if in a, uh, in a democracy, I really do think we need to teach people more that it's not just a privilege, but a responsibility. Secretary Albert, thank you so much for being with us this Great. morning. Please thank join me in thanking the Secretary. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very, very much. much. Great. All right.